It's November 23rd, 2019, and this is episode 418 of the Let's Talk Bitcoin show. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today we're following two distinct trains of thought. In segment two, I'm joined by the other hosts of Let's Talk Bitcoin for an exploration of state chains with creator Ruben Somson. As a technology, it fits nicely between existing blockchains like Bitcoin and in-development so-called off-chain solutions like the Lightning Network. If you're interested in a real look at how blockchains may scale, this discussion is not to be missed. But first, at Coindesk's recent Invest 2019 event held earlier this month, there was one on-stage discussion which really caught my attention. Eric Weinstein is a profound thinker who, although perhaps not a crypto native, has a more complete picture and an absolutely fascinating perspective on the challenges and realities we face. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions on topics we should be thinking about, send an email to adam at ltbshow.com. And a big thanks to our sponsors on this episode, edge.app, rave.com, and etoro.com. Subscribe for free at ltbshow.com and never miss an episode. The title of this discussion is Long Bitcoin Short the World, Trading the Panopticon for Magical Internet Money. And in addition to Eric Weinstein, this segment features Coindesk journalist Nolan as the questioner. So... We invented this sort of not tech crypto uh, financial event in 2017 to kind of meet Wall Street halfway in an event that would use their vocabulary and, and not come at Wall Street as if it's another tech event. Um, and within that original design, we knew we wanted futurists because, of course, a big part of the investment case here is that we're investing in a future that's not quite like today. That's actually probably pretty different. Um, so today I think you're getting the full vision of how we originally saw this conference with Eric here. Um, and what we're gonna try and do is paint a picture of the largest possible investment thesis here. And it's not just Lambos and you make money. There's another side to the equation. There's a reason why all this is happening. And if you saw the word panopticon in the title, um, that comes from a tweet that Naval Ravikant, he sort of popularized, I mean, the word comes from, you know, it's a word. But Naval tweeted it the other day, and it got a lot of people thinking, and it brought it up in the popular consciousness. You can think of it, a panopticon as like a dollhouse, right? You can see inside of it. It comes from prisons where you can see inside all of these prisons. Um, so we wanted to frame it in that way. So um, we're also going to do one other little exercise. If any of you guys have seen Tur Demeester's recent... Uh, post on the reformation of Bitcoin. So what he does is he draws this analogy of the reformation in, 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 in Holland, so we're talking about 1500s, and he wrote this sort of analysis saying that the conditions for Bitcoin are almost transmutable onto this. Uh, and so as I was putting notes together for Eric, I said, this is actually the way to frame a lot of what, of what Eric thinks about the space, I think anyway, what we're gonna try and get to here. Um, so within this um, Dutch Reformation analogy, the first thing that was argued that was necessary was to have this evil boss. In that case, it was the Catholic Church. They needed to be a rent-seeking monopoly. Of course, their monopoly was on the gates to heaven. Um, but of course, it's not that in our current conditions. Uh, it's, you know, we, we, we had the Reformation, the separation of church and state happened. What we're talking about now is potentially the separation of money and state. 
and we have a new boss, um, you know, new villains that have these rent-seeking monopolies. Um, are they these institutions of various types that you often talk about in your podcast? Is it, is it the academia? Is it all these other institutions that have been telling us certain things for the past few years, and perhaps it's not exactly uh, what meets the eye? Um, well, that, that is my contention. My contention is that the key problem uh, is sort of across all institutions, or at least those that have what I call an embedded growth obligation. And so an embedded growth obligation is sort of like a stall speed for a plane. If the organization does not grow organically um, at a certain rate or beyond, it becomes pathological. It has to lie to new recruits as to uh, what their prospects for rising, uh, a, say, up a corporate ladder or through an apprenticeship model. It has to uh, be deceptive about pensions and, and what it can promise for the future. It has to be uh, disingenuous with uh, stakeholders, shareholders, If it's you. not growing. If it's not growing. And what we don't have is a rating on every institution that states this institution must grow at this rate or it will be headed by somebody who is sociopathic in their ability to lie in order to keep the institution afloat. And we inherited lots of institutions that we have very positive feelings about, hospitals, universities, newspapers, what have you. And we didn't understand that they were all built on models that made sense from the 1945 to about 1973 growth regime. When that growth regime fell apart organically, we've been struggling ever since to try to figure out how to keep our institutions afloat. This was not begun by the baby boomers, but much more by the silent generation and even the greatest generation. The baby boomers got very excited about not trying to use t these sort of fake growth techniques to buy time, but in order to actually grow certain slices of the pie at the expense of others. That's why our Gini coefficient gets crazy starting in the 70s. That's why um, all our immigration patterns change markedly after the 65 Act, and particularly in the 1970s. So right now what we have is we have a problem with institutions across the board that are all built around growth hypotheses that can't be sustained organically. Hence the crisis, um, and it's interesting because it's a distributed crisis. It's throughout all of these institutions. It's not any particular sector. I would say the academic sector might be the worst because tuition rises not only faster than inflation, but it rises faster than medical inflation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and moving it into what's, I think, particularly relevant for cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, you know, especially given global trade wars and let's call it the deglobalization of the world. You know, we've seen these central banks play a lot of games over the past few years. Where's their role in all of this uh, institutional change? Well, central banks are almost defined as game-playing institutions. And, you know, particularly if you go as far as, like, modern monetary theory. Um, which is becoming popular. Which is becoming popular. Maybe the idea is that uh, uh, deceit and duplicitous behavior is um, a feature, not a bug, and that you need to be able to fool people uh, into keeping the world's markets uh, within certain boundaries of stability. But, you know, the question about how you're going to manage crises in low interest rate environments and the like, nobody has a solution for this. We're careening to a very interesting uh, near-term future as what I call the baby boomer bubble um, pops. Is it catastrophic? 
is there more to it? Well, it certainly looks catastrophic, except if you look at, um, I mean, it, it depends. Are, are, I could tell you two stories, one of which is look out your window, everything is fine, more or less. Um, this is like the Steven Pinker, everything has gotten much better story. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you another story that says we're in the middle already of a worldwide uh, low-grade revolution that knows every single continent. And you know, you're seeing demonstrations and uh, strife starting to you know, poke through this thin crust, but there's a magma of discontent um, to your point about the Catholic Church and its analogs, and people don't even know what they're angry about. They just know that somehow um, they're not able to form families, they're not able to find low-variance careers, they're not able to think intergenerationally, and uh, you know, I was just talking to a bunch of millennials earlier today, and I'm worried about, the, you know, are they going to be able to form families? If you can't form families, you have a problem at the societal level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, life is about babies. It just is. And babies are about stability and about, uh, in general, to, you know, couples raising kids. And we don't have an ability to reach increasingly, I think, the median worker and convince that person that that person is a stakeholder in our society. So the, the second condition that Tur underlined um, was you need a technological innovation. Of course, in the time of the Reformation, it was the printing press. This is what got the whole thing fired up. Now, we can say, you know, current conditions have brought us the internet, but I think there's something a little more unique that Bitcoin did, and that's that sort of autonomous math that went into its um, development and creation. Of course, no one paid for the creation of Bitcoin. No one has paid for its security. It's incentivized a bunch of actors to come together and create what amounts to an institution that can supplant other ones that had this sort of centralized control. Do you see it that way? Is, is that potentially the, the, the technology we can use to catch up to this lack of growth and, and fill that void? Well, I really believe that blockchain, crypto, Bitcoin, what have you, um, is first of all, it's in, it's in its infancy. Second of all, it's an unbelievable intellectual innovation. It's one of the only ones of our times. And I think it's fantastic that it doesn't have a great use case yet because you can tell who is thinking theoretically and who is thinking practically. The person who says, ah, I don't wanna hear about that, just tell me how this fits into my nine to five. It's like, okay, well, you're not gonna get this one for a while, but you will. Mm -hmm. um, I should say that one of the reasons I'm not fabulously wealthy was my inability to get prime brokerage prime brokerage for Bitcoin in 2010 mm -hmm. when I called around in New York and people just laughed on the other end of the phone. They had no idea what the hell I was talking about. So we just abandoned it. I wrote an article about it instead of uh, buying a few drives and sticking them <laughs> away somewhere. Um, look, this is, this is a major innovation and change and this is an amazing period where it isn't clear to everybody what, what just happened. And it's also probably a broken version of the technology, so I don't have a great hope for the long-term future of this. Like, you know, people want to ask, you know, what do you think about Tether versus Ether versus Bitcoin? My feeling is, is that until you get rid of the blockchain as part of crypto so that there is no ledger and there is no stench to your money, 
you haven't really fully gotten to digital gold yet. So you're meaning those full privacy coins that, that have sort of abstracted any knowledge of what's going on specific in a ledger that just say, okay, mathematically, we know the state has been maintained and changed according to the, the well, way users have used th it. That's what's so exciting about this, is, is that you've ported Newton from the physical into the logical layer, right? Like, mm -hmm. congratulations, give yourselves a huge round of applause. This is a big deal. Because the only thing we know that works as well as, I mean, nothing works as well as physical reality. You can, you can explode a hydrogen bomb and you don't tear the space-time fabric. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, if you want something that never throws an exception and that is guaranteed to work no matter what, that's physical reality. What Bitcoin did is it showed us that we could have conservation rules inside of the logical layer that mirrors the physical layer that are locally enforced. Like if you and I have a gold transaction, mm -hmm. the person in, in room uh, 2301 doesn't have to know about that, mm -hmm. right? There shouldn't be a record of our transacting. And that failure to mirror that aspect of the physical world mm -hmm. is gonna get, is gonna be put under a lot of strain. And that's going to, when we get rid of it, we're going to have true conservation laws that are locally enforced, uh, and the, the replacement for space-time will be the internet. It will be the network of computers mm -hmm. that, in some sense, interpret reality. So if I'm, if I'm to understand you correctly, you're saying that, that you've got universal laws of physics, so there's always gonna be this iPad, and you can't take it away, it's here. Uh, you can't just copy it you know, with, with a machine right in front of us. Um, but in cyberspace, of course, you could. You could copy anything you felt like. There well, was we no talk about, like, oh, I'll just spin up a server for you. This, is, this was a, a revolution that happened in computing, uh, and particularly enterprise computing, where the divorce between a logical box and a physical box was made um, complete, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. in essence. Okay, so now the idea is that I have a phone, and in order for you to have my phone, I have to not have my phone. Mm -hmm. And whatever it is that effectively calls the destructor method on the phone that was in my custody to create to call a constructor method on the phone that was in your custody. That's a fancy logical way of saying that there was a wave, you know, quantum mechanical wave that somehow moved from this point to that point in the space-time manifold. Well, the same thing is going to happen with a digital token, you know, the token was here and now it's over there mm -hmm. and it has to be locally enforced so that we don't have to alert the entire world that it's happened. So you had written a, a blog post, I think in 2010, along these lines, I think it was called Go Virtual Young Man, and what you, I think you had said in that was, you know, you, 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 there was a lot of talk, you know, the, the center of power went from Europe to America, a lot of talk about it going further um, to the Far East. Yep. And I think the article suggested that there was a whole new frontier that was just the air that was going to take over as this important jurisdiction in the world. That was about Bitcoin. Was, in 2010? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. No, this is, about, this is about my failure to find prime brokerage for Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> so you thought the, was the digital... If I ever find who, who it was, it turned me down. Um, yeah, it was, it was crazy. Because you were able to see the digital empire at that time just because with, with the money or the, the exchange of time in place and the conservation principles, you now had a, a, a virtual world. For real. Look, I've always... I've always Okay, in my world, uh, early is another name for wrong, and I'm always wrong. Um, waiting to see if that sinks in. Uh, 
what I really believed was is that you could see all of these problems and issues if you just abstracted it. It, it was plain to see. I've been frightened of my Silicon Valley friends who keep talking about an abundance economy, the world of abundance. What they're talking about is the, you know, I think Mark Andreessen always loves to call it software eating the world. Well, that is the process of replacing physical assets by logical assets. And every logical asset has the problem that it becomes instantly inexhaustible and inexcludable, i.e. a public good. What happens with public good? Price and value gap. What happens with price and value gap? The market can't see it. You're gonna push all the great stuff that we have done into the blind spot of economics and markets. And you're excited about that. Are you insane? Have you gone quite mad? You know, that was sort of my feeling. What does is, what is something like blockchain allow us to do? Bring back scarcity, which is a gift in my opinion. Because when you have scarcity, you have markets. And when you have markets, you have freedom. And so, by the way, I'm saying this as a progressive, not as a conservative, but like the whole thing is so screwed up, nobody can think straight. Um, what we need is we need to be free of rent-seeking, free of the finger on the scale of actors who shouldn't be in control of our lives, who nevertheless have inserted themselves through political economy or other means. And this is an opportunity, if we steward it correctly, to either really screw ourselves up in a profound way, or to finally realize some of the promise of uh, markets and democracy for freeing human souls. And that's what I'm excited about. So, so speaking of freeing human souls and the next generation, the third, the third item that was needed, according to Tur, was this generation of people with everything to gain from this change. Um, so we talk a lot about millennials. You had mentioned them a bit about, uh, about maybe they can't start families. You have kids who are, I guess, Generation Z, who are even you know, part of a, a whole new, new different thing that's coming up. Um, you know, what, what world is in store for them? Is this a world where they can, if you look at it from a fourth turning point of view, for example, they can become artists and use the technology to create? What do they, what do they need to know in this technology that will emancipate them and, and bring them to that point? Well, I think the first, uh, Jesus, this is so painful. Um, all professions are over. Anything that is known as a profession, like orthodontia. Like jobs. Yeah, but worse than jobs. At least with jobs, you don't waste your youth training, and you can change jobs in multiple areas, and you know you had an interesting and colorful career. But when you train for something, like you're a radiologist, and then some neural net comes along and doesn't know about how prestigious your medical school was, and it just you know walks all over you, you've got a problem. Every known occupation has been discovered and done to death, whether it's law or medicine or education or whatever. There are still huge opportunities, but they're much more one-off. And so I, I always compare this to a software program. If you run a software program in a debugger and you want to see where it spends its time, you just let it run and then you stop it randomly. And it's almost always stopped in a while loop or a for loop because that's what computers do. They do repetitive behavior. So look at your job and figure out which parts of it are one and done that are unique. Call those the Rube Goldberg sections. Mm -hmm. And then call the other sections the loop sections. Well, the loop sections are being targeted by software. And if you think you're as good as software at doing something highly repetitive. Um, so, so then is Mark right? Is software going to eat the world? I mean, where's the disconnect here? If, if, it's, if there's no jobs, why not radical abundance? Well, why are you having me as your closing speaker? That doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And it's because I guarantee you, you can't find a program 
that will say anything like the stuff that I'm saying, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And so I've tried to take my own advice <laughs> and say, I could tell you all of the standard obvious, uh -huh. you know, we could have a conversation about custody. Uh -huh. um, we could talk about <laughs> compliance. Um, but what is left to do is to do the things that are intrinsically human, right? Your, your while loop stuff, let a computer do that. My question is, have you ever heard your own voice? Do you have anything interesting to say at all? Can you locate your ovaries or your testicles and tell us something that we're dying to hear, right? And it's very tough, because you have to get up on, on a stage. I'm, first of all, I'm very angry at the homosexuals. And the reason, I love to make statements like that, because they've monopolized the closet. We're all in a closet, right? Just like women have monopolized the glass ceiling, baby, there are glass ceilings everywhere. Everybody is finding limitations to where they can rise. Everybody's afraid to talk openly and say what they really think. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what my, my claim is, is that people are increasingly going to get paid for authentic, intrinsically human things. And if, if it has to be a repetitive behavior, it's going to be like being a massage therapist or, or a family therapist. It's going to be doing something intrinsically very human on a repetitive basis. But as far as orthodontia, I would not recommend your children go into orthodontics. <laughs> so the, the last thing that Tur brings up as an important factor is the weapons to fight against this boss of the Catholic Church in this case, institutional failure. And we can kind of start to lay out these weapons. We have math now as, as a really important one. You know, don't forget there, there are no coins. These are all, you know, keys. Those are all cryptographic keys right, and right, they're all right. math themselves and we're using them to express consent in a digital world. We've got things like podcasts and memes in particular are, are really important. And the Dutch Devilish. Reformation, yeah, we had, you know, I guess it was, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the, the scripture is holy, know your own, uh, be your own pastor, right? They had all these ideas. They had memes of their own at the time. And you're someone within the, the intellectual dark web and certainly as a mathematician, know quite a bit about these tools and are, and are definitely working in them. Where do you see these tools as, as playing that role to, to bring that kind of change that the Duff, Dutch Reformation brought? Um, and, and in particular, Bitcoin and math and... and, and yeah, well, this, the great thing is, is that not all of these tools show up to normies, right? So, um, look, I can't even believe what's going on. I walk down the street and I'm recognized and people say, Eric, and I think, did I go to high school with you? Mm -hmm. And I, I forget that I have a podcast uh, or that I've been on some of these, like the Joe Rogan program. You know, I think when, when Elon Musk went on Joe Rogan, I tweeted out, when mainstream media's reach isn't quite enough. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that there's a guy named Joe Rogan who makes fart jokes and sits behind a desk and has more viewers than, you know, Game of Thrones episodes mm -hmm. hasn't sunk in. The idea of, you know, Bitcoin billionaires hasn't fully sunk in because these technologies are not fully understood. However, it's getting to the point where it's hard to pretend that Andrew Yang is not running for president by leaving him off of a graphic at CNN or MSNBC. Have you noticed this? Mm -hmm. um, they put him at the end all the time, don't they? Well, they, they use linear perspective, yeah, 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 like it's a DeCirico yeah. painting and he's at the <laughs> vanishing point and then the person stands in front of him. It's very funny. And Tulsi Gabbard, you know, of course, a Russian asset, according to our friend Hillary Clinton. Who, uh, but I digress. So. 
I mean, we're in a situation where nobody believes the institutions, nobody believes the experts. And increasingly, Wikipedia is going to be degraded because it's been dependent on authoritative sources as, as its ultimate um, source of truth. So right now, what you're, what you're in is a world with like, it's, it's sort of akin, um, since the finance crowd, to having no numeraire. Nobody knows how to mark their PL with respect to the truth because nobody knows who's telling the truth, who has the truth, what's going on. Look, Benchmarks are gone. Yeah, I mean, like the Democratic and Republican parties live in two logically different countries that have nothing to do with each other. Have you noticed? Mm -hmm, it just mm -hmm. everything has gone completely insane, and somehow the only layer that's still working is the custodial, or is the maintenance layer. Like things that were built by our ancestors are still being maintained. Bridges and so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not we're not collapsing in them yet. But these tools. Um, you know, whether it's elliptic curves, whether it's long-form podcasting, uh, these are significant tools of revolution. And the, the, the generation, the baby boom and the silence predominantly, are the only people who still really believe in the system. And they're aging out. And all of these other people are saying, I really don't see my future. I don't see a world that I feel comfortable bringing kids into. I don't see a low variance world. Uh, I don't see 30 year mortgages as being <laughs> real. Mm -hmm. um, and the search for low variance processes that you can attach your life to and, and raise a family around, uh, we are about to invent something or we're gonna have some kind of accelerated revolution. The great thing about the low grade revolution is that it's not kinetic. Mm -hmm. And Steven Pinker's big problem is that he's missing the potential energy term for violence. The potential energy of violence has never been greater. It's the realized violence that's been decreasing. So I don't disagree with that, but you know, in a physics sense, it's like you know, being on top of a huge tank of natural gas and claiming that you know, you're safe. You're not safe, you're just sitting on a big tank of natural gas. And, and we've seen, I guess, even in California, the Gini coefficient go out of control in the past little while. You know, the infrastructure is falling apart. You've got, I, I guess, you're a San Francisco refugee, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I just, I've just returned to LA after 37 years away. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that there is some, there is some bad mojo in the Bay Area. Mm. Um, I think it has to do with the fact that the city is supposed to be for whichever revolutionaries need it the most, and now the revolutionaries that need it the most appear to be falsely innovative, um, previously technologically focused companies that are now just giant behemoths. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's killing the vitality of it. Um, with respect to the income inequality and asset inequality, this sort of reflects the fact that jobs are over, right? And so the, the people who are becoming very wealthy are not being paid enormous hourly rates. Mm -hmm. They they are in what I call the profession that has no name. They sit down and talk to people and sign pieces of paper. Mm -hmm. And whatever that activity is, it's very hard to train for it. I don't even know what it's called exactly, uh, whether you call it being you know, a VC or an entrepreneur. But right now, jobs aren't working. And that's, that's the part of the Gini coefficient that, that's really depressing because that, the median individual is not a remarkable person. They're, they're the median individual. Mm -hmm. They still need a good life. So even looking at, at Google for a second, you know, it used to be, um, you know, don't be, don't be evil and all this stuff. Now, I mean, you know, bringing it back to Panopticon, 
the stuff they're doing is, is, is an investment case for some people. Do you see it that way? Do you see these choices that they're making um, as, as having a correlative financial bank yeah. on assets that will keep and maintain privacy and create networks of privacy? I don't know what to make of it. I never believed don't be evil. Mm -hmm. I never believed that it was simply a good idea to connect the entire world. Mm -hmm. I mean, anybody with a large family should know that that's a very dangerous activity. <laughs> um, so I'm never quite sure what these people who are getting richer while saying silly things really believe mm -hmm. because they can't possibly believe what they're saying. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know what's going on. I, my sense of it is that a lot of these people are trapped in their companies. Um, they can't be honest, they can't get out, they're afraid of being called up in front of Congress and asked tough questions like, mm -hmm. um, you know, are you a platform, are you a publisher, are you making editorial decisions, do you bias search? You know, Google's very funny. Uh, mm -hmm. They don't bias search, they unbias search. Think about that. So if you ask them, do you unbias search? They say, oh yeah, we unbias search. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, they haven't noticed that what they call unbiasing search is biasing search. Look up a video called ML Fairness and they'll explain to you just how they unbias your data. That's their dodge. As soon as we get one smart congressperson to say, excuse me, do you unbias your data? The whole jig is up. But we don't apparently have anybody who can figure out how to ask that particular question. It's very strange. So you can, you can almost think of these guys, though, operating in their own type of medieval fiefdoms where they have their own little empires. And, and while that sort of virtual world you described is, is not quite there yet because these guys maintain their castles and their stronghold, the same way the Dutch Reformation brought about the conditions to end medieval Europe and bring it into a type of renaissance and, and, and new growth, um, do we have that with the weapons of cryptography I think here? the popes want out. Mm -hmm. So if you offer, <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. Like, they beat it. Well, think about it. You're, you're, you're the head of a company. You're yeah. forced to lie. Mm -hmm. You have to do evil things because you have a fiduciary obligation to your shareholders to do evil things mm -hmm. because you're sitting on top of everybody's data. Mm -hmm. There are all these unincorporated externalities. Aside from the fact that you're getting paid hand over foot, um, you know, incredible sums of money. It's a terrible job. Mm -hmm. So I think that you have these people who are getting fantastically rich, being forced into being evil because we built, first of all, the killer app is the economy and the way we've structured it causes these people to be incentivized to be bad. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, they're sitting on top of these new invasive technologies. I, I keep talking about surveillance level data is data that during the 1980s would have required hiring a private investigator mm -hmm. or getting a, you know, a warrant for a wire. wiretap yeah, yeah. to collect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, they don't necessarily love where they are, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I think they want to be put out of their misery. That's a crazy theory, but I, I don't think that they're happy. The, the wire on HBO aged really well, except for the process around the wires. That seemed a little far-fetched these days. Well, the, the interesting thing, though, is, is that the half-silvered mirror that is Google or Facebook has never really fully broken. Like, we don't really understand how much stuff we've done in front of that thing that looked like a mirror but allowed the guys on the other side to see everything that we I mean, just out of curiosity, how many people have programmed a computer in the last month in this room? Okay. We got one there. We got one yeah, there. Yeah, we, we've we got, got a couple. Yeah, we got another one we there. Got a few. But most of us don't even know how to find the command line mm -hmm. or programming language on our computer because they're just these things that serve apps to us. Mm -hmm. and. You know, if you've never played with something like Wireshark, you have no idea what it means to say, oh, you know, these messages are actually postcards because you've never seen the postcard reading application. 
So all of our data is being held in this crazy way that hasn't yet destroyed all of our um, relationships, you know, whether, you know, would we all be in jail if suddenly all of our information came out? I, I, I don't know, but there is a potential future event in which we become aware of the information that's actually held against us. I don't think almost any of us viscerally feel it, and I think it is one of the great achievements of these tech giants that we've never had this full-scale, wholesale breach of all of our privacy. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm getting warned by the clock that our time is up. Um, thank you so much, Eric. Thank uh, you. Any, any final notes on, on Bitcoin in the future for our, for our audience? Um, next time around, if I call you up and I ask you for prime brokerage, if there any, anybody out there, <laughs> There's some please, people please, get please close to it. be more adventurous <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and take into account that if, if we're having this conversation 15 years from now, uh, what is a, apparent to a few will be a, apparent to almost everyone, just the way uh, it was when you saw your first URL uh, outside uh, on, a mur on, on, a, on a billboard or a bus or something that uh, this space is primed at some point to, to take off of the stratosphere. Eric Weinstein, folks. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here for another sponsored minute with Paul from Edge.app, a non-custodial exchange to buy, sell, and trade cryptocurrency. Hi, Paul. Hey, Adam. Happy to announce today that we are really bringing the power of decentralized exchanges to the masses. As many people know, decentralized exchanges really provide the permissionless access to be able to exchange many different cryptocurrencies independent of a centralized third party making that decision for them. Today, we're announcing integration with Total. It's an API that allows Edge to connect to multiple independent decentralized exchanges or DEXs to provide liquidity for the currency pair that a user is wanting to swap. Not only does Edge connect to these decentralized exchanges through Total, but they actually connect to conventional exchange partners such as Changely and ChangeNow and Shapeshift, and it'll actually find the best price for the currency pair a user wants to swap in the amount that they want to swap, really folding these DEXs into the mix seamlessly with other centralized exchanges. So we're excited to hear what people have to say. Head on over to the website and give it a shot and send us your feedback. To get your hands on one of the most powerful yet user-friendly crypto apps out there, stop by edge.app today. Thanks a whole lot, Paul. Thanks a bunch, Adam. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you in part by Brave. If you haven't heard about Brave yet, Brave is the web browser reimagined. Brave is built by a team of privacy-focused, performance-oriented pioneers of the web, like co-founder Brendan Eich, who previously co-founded Mozilla Firefox and created JavaScript. Brave gives you back control of your online privacy by shielding you from data-grabbing ads and trackers, all while allowing you to surf the internet up to six times faster than other browsers, saving you battery power and reducing your data costs. Simply put, Brave offers you the best user experience for browsing the internet today. So what are you waiting for? For the best webs and the smoothest internets, go to brave.com LTB. That's brave.com LTB. And of course, it's always free. Thanks for listening. Hey folks, I'm Adam B. Levine, and today we're joined by Andreas Antonopoulos. Hello. Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Uh, and special guest, Ruben Thompson. Hello. Thanks to all the hosts, our guests, and to you, the listeners, for sitting in on today's session.
So while we haven't talked about it in a while, scaling, it turns out, is a hard problem, which at least today requires picking priorities and accepting trade-offs. In just the world of Bitcoin, we've seen ideas like federated industry sidechains, such as a liquid product for exchanges from Blockstream, proposals like miner-driven drive chains for everything else, and of course, we've seen still early but rapidly developing Lightning Network, among many other things. Last year, Ruben Sompson put out a new idea, which we haven't had a chance to talk about on the show yet, but I think it's worth talking about and offers an interesting new set of trade-offs compared to everything else we've seen today. So the topic at hand is state chains. Ruben, just kind of starting simply, what are state chains in a general sense, and how did you kind of arrive at this idea? Like, I, I like explaining things with a whiteboard. I mean, that's, that's what I tend to do. <laughs> and just putting it in words is always a little tricky. I'll, I'll try my best to make it kind of clear. Where I'd like to start with the explanation is kind of what the whole point is of creating some kind of layer two solution, right? Because we have this Bitcoin blockchain that is kind of fundamentally unscalable because everybody has to verify every transaction. There are all these alternate solutions, like, like you mentioned. You mentioned Lightning, you mentioned sidechains like Liquid. In my opinion, even something like Coinbase is like kind of a layer two where you know, you're just completely trusting one entity and... In that sense, it's, it kind of defeats the purpose of what we're trying to do with Bitcoin, but it is a scaling solution in a sense. I think state chains is kind of like yet another one of those trade-offs where you're adding some trust, but we're kind of trying to minimize it as much as possible. And hopefully that kind of leads to kind of a novel set of trade-offs that is, is kind of worthwhile and in the future uh, might be used. I think the closest thing to state chains is, is basically side chains like liquid, where mm-hmm. you have a, a federation that controls your money. And the federation is essentially just a multi-sig on the Bitcoin blockchain. So you can imagine, you know, sending one Bitcoin to a 11 out of 15, in the case of liquid, a multi-sig address, and that's where your money is. And then that money is represented on this side chain, but in essence, on the Bitcoin blockchain, Whatever those 11 people say, that's, that's where the money goes. And uh, state chains is similar, but slightly different in the sense that you basically, as you're sending the money to a federation, you automatically receive a pegout transaction. And that kind of puts the emphasis on withdrawing as opposed to having the money kind of with the multisig. So the default is basically the, if the federation disappears, you can get your money back. And that turns out to be quite important in terms of security because let's say 11 out of 15 uh, multisig, the problem you get there is that in the case of 11 out of 15, if five people refuse to sign, your, your money is frozen. Basically, if more than 33% refuses to sign, your money cannot move. And you don't have that problem with the state chain because the peg out is the default. So there's a lot going on there. <laughs> let's get into this a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, when we're talking about something like Liquid or some sort of federated sidechain, effectively what's happening there is we're getting better scaling characteristics because instead of using the traditional mining, you know, the Bitcoin mining as the validation mechanism, instead we're using a federation of people who have uh, or companies who have, you know, skin in the game and who would take a reputational loss, uh, potentially, you know, a revenue loss, potentially other types of losses if they were to go outside of the rules. In the pure Bitcoin system, everything is very automated because Bitcoin essentially operates itself. But that decentralization and the operating itself characteristic comes at the cost of some of the scaling that you can get 
it is not scaling in the sense that you still have a blockchain that everybody needs to verify. Even if you use Liquid, if you want to be certain that the Federation isn't screwing you over, you still need to download and verify every block. It's more of a way to segregate the transactions mm -hmm. into certain pools of people that frequently interact with each other. So in the case of Liquid, you know, the use case is exchanges. Mm -hmm. So when you're sending liquidity or when you're sending coins from one exchange to another, that's kind of the niche in which Liquid is trying to operate. And then the scaling kind of comes from the fact that you might have like different sidechains for different niches. Like as long as you don't have to go from one sidechain to another sidechain, it is kind of efficient. It is still limited in its, in its scaling potential in the sense that still everybody has to verify everything. So the usefulness of this is basically you're doing off-chain transactions and you're getting a little bit more trustlessness, but not complete trustlessness. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. I read a couple of other descriptions of state chains that perhaps clicked for me more because it seemed to relate also to Lightning. So in Lightning, you do a two of two multi-sig with another party. That's what a payment channel is. And you also have the ability to get a refund if the other party disappears. And what you're sending to each other in Lightning is pre-signed transactions that allow you to, let's say, get out of the relationship if the other person disappears and ghosts you. What I read, which actually made a lot of sense, was that state chains is very similar in that you're doing a two of two multi-sig, only the other party is a federated group uh, multi-sig using adapter signatures. Um, yeah, threshold the, signatures, actually, but yeah. Threshold signatures, yes. The difference is that what you're sending to each other is not pre-signed transactions, but the private keys to sign the transactions with. So you're transferring keys instead of transactions between peers. And that mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you, you actually send both. So both. Oh, okay. It, very good. It, I mean, it is, it is sadly a little, uh, you know, like I said, it, it's very challenging to, to explain the full concept. But uh, now, Andreas, you, uh, you pointed out an important like, key aspect, basically. Uh, one big difference between a sidechain and a state chain is that you're sending entire UTXOs. So with a, with a sidechain, you're, you're literally, you can send any fraction of, uh, of however many coins you have on that sidechain. But here with state chains, you have to send the entire UTXO. And the entire UTXO is under the joint control, like you said, uh, two of two multisig, where one is the user and the other is the federation. And the, the peg outs that I was referring to earlier is, like you said, kind of like a lightning uh, transaction that settles on basically the last owner of the money. So if you want to send the money from Alice to Bob, then Bob will have a off-chain transaction that's similar to, to how, Lightning, how the Lightning Network works. Uh, Bob can send that to the Bitcoin blockchain. And even if Alice sends her transaction to the Bitcoin blockchain, Bob's uh, transaction kind of has a precedence. One of the problems that exists in Lightning and other payment channel-like systems is that if one of the parties tries to transmit a prior state, you need to deal with that. Current right. version of Lightning deals with that with either watchtowers or penalty transactions with a winner-takes-all game-theoretical advantage. A better solution is L2, where you're rebinding the transactions to the outputs in such a way that a prior state cannot be transmitted. And I understand in, in state chains, you're using L2 or you're proposing to use L2 so that Alice can't transmit a prior state and thereby cheat Bob 
from his money. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Thanks for clarifying what I was stumbling on there. Alice can send the transaction to the blockchain, but Bob can then kind of overwrite it with, with his transaction. It means basically that always the last state will always be the last thing that gets recorded on the Bitcoin blockchain. That's the fundamental comparison for me to Lightning, which is that in state chains also, what you're doing is using an off-chain platform off the Bitcoin blockchain that gives you some scaling advantages, but then you use the Bitcoin blockchain as the final arbiter, where if there is a dispute or an attempt to cheat, then it becomes the court system, if you like, that resolves that dispute deterministically. Yeah, that is correct. Uh, the name suddenly makes a lot more sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> states, yes. <laughs> so it's, it's a bit of a play on side chains, right? So it's side chains, state chains. The state really comes from uh, basically uh, the L2 transactions getting updated in state where the last state is the state that gets recorded on the Bitcoin blockchain at the end. So what advantages does this have compared to a platform like the Lightning Network? So that's an interesting comparison there. Um, so it's a different set of trade-offs where Lightning at the end of the day is, I would say, kind of qualifies more with the, the word trustless, where as long as you can send your transactions to the Bitcoin blockchain without you know, getting censored or anything, you will always get the correct state. You always get your money. And that is not the case here. Uh, there is a federation. And basically, if the, the, the entire federation tries to take your money, then if they try hard enough, then they can. But then the assumption is that as long as more than 33% of the federation isn't dishonest, uh, you're, you're going to be fine, kind of depending on how you set it up. Yeah, the difference you get is with Lightning, you have the, these two problems of routing and throughput where you have to find a route through which you uh, want to send your money and, and the route has a limited a balance in it. So really, the more coins you want to send on the Lightning Network, the more expensive it's going to be and the more you're going to run out of bandwidth, so to speak, or run out of the channel capacity. You don't have that problem at all with something like state chains. The interesting thing is that they actually work together really well because as Andreas, you were alluding to earlier, the contracts that you wish to use on a state chain actually get enforced on the, on the Bitcoin blockchain. A state chain as, as a protocol doesn't really deal with uh, smart contracts at all. It's just a set of signatures and the money moves from A to B to C and there's nothing complex going on there. But you can choose to actually turn it into uh, an entire lightning channel where the money is inside of one UTXO on a state chain, but it's controlled by, let's say, both Andreas and me together. And then we open up a Lightning channel on top of that. And the interesting thing you get there is that with the Lightning Network, you know, if you want to open a channel, if you're going to close a channel, that's expensive because you've got to go on-chain. But now through something like state chains, you can actually do that off-chain, assuming you're comfortable with the trust assumptions. So essentially what you're saying is you have the Bitcoin blockchain as layer one, a state chain as a layer two that allows you to transmit whole UTXOs and only whole indivisible UTXOs yes. uh, between parties efficiently and off-chain. And then if those parties are actually a multi-sig two of two, you can build Lightning as layer three on top of that. Yeah. And then that allows you to take the whole UTXOs and chop them up. So basically that fixes one of the weaknesses of state chains. Because uh, you can transmit them as fractions. Mm -hmm. But then state chains fixes one of the weaknesses of Lightning by making the open and close channel transactions off-chain. 
Exactly. Yeah. That's a really neat synergy. You know, another thing that this kind of reminds me of, Ruben, and I'm curious if you've thought about this comparison, uh, it kind of reminds me of physical Bitcoins, you know, like a physical token that is a vehicle for a private key. Like Open Dime? Well, whatever. I mean, like uh, the early Casatius coins, any sort of any sort of private key encoded into a physical object seems like it has a very similar method of operation here, except that it yeah. doesn't have any sort of online characteristic, which both has advantages and disadvantages. That's actually very interesting that you bring that up. So what I was uh, you know, mentioning earlier, or actually Andreas brought it up, right? We have this, this two of two multisig where one key is with the users and one key is with the federation. This second key or the key that's with the users, you can actually transmit it through some hardware device uh, like an open dime or some other type of HSM with maybe a remote attestation where you can actually transfer the private key from one device to another. And now you kind of have the best of both worlds in the sense that your money is inside of the hardware device and controlled by it. But if the hardware device breaks, you still have this off-chain transaction that you can send to the Bitcoin blockchain. Mm -hmm. And the only downside here is that, well, I think that's even the case with Open Dime, right? Like you still need to kind of connect to the internet to kind of verify there's even money on the device in the first place. I guess you always have that requirement. So this is actually, uh, it, it, it does function very similarly. Just again, to kind of try to understand the basics here, one of the primary advantages of this is that if I as a user have money in one of these sidechain type of vehicles, then ultimately I have to rely on either the miners in a drive chain type of scenario or the federation in uh, like a liquid type of scenario to mm -hmm. actually co-sign the release of my money. And in the scenario where for whatever reason they're not acting as they should, then I actually don't have much in the way of recourse there outside of like trying to sue them, compel them to legal action. But the state chain approach doesn't have that because it allows you to withdraw effectively on chain, as you were saying. Now, you mentioned that this system can withstand up to kind of 33% defections on the federation. And you also mentioned that we're transferring around the private key uh, as kind of the other side, you know, like that's the right. thing. If I'm sending money to you, I'm actually sending you the private key for that particular piece of money which is itself one of two with the other uh, side of the key being held by the Federation. Yeah. So there's obviously a potential problem here uh, where I had the private key at one point, but I transferred the private key to someone else in transferring the money. What happens if the Federation you know, colludes with me to actually give me that money? Is that just like the primary weakness of the system where effectively 33% of the people defect uh, or 50% you know, mm. uh, of the people in the Federation defect? And then they partner with somebody who had a prior version of the key because it's the same private key that's being passed along at each step, right? And it's just kind of like right. a social contract holding this together. Right. That second private key is actually not where the security comes from. So far, what I've been arguing is actually it holds even if that private key got exposed and Federation learns that private key. It's still the case that they can only cheat if basically more than 33%. And actually, the way you can set it up is that the entire federation needs to sign off on the transaction. And if even one of them refuses to do so because they think that transaction was actually not uh, signed off on by the actual owner, then your system is still secure, but you're forced on chain. So that's kind of the downside. So in Liquid, if you have a federation, you know, like 11 out of 15, if just a couple of them refuse to cooperate, your money is frozen. And with a state chain, you can set it up in such a way that if you want, literally all 15 of them need to sign off on the transaction. But since they do so when you first receive the money and you have this off-chain transaction already, it's only for transfer that you need your permission. 
So once you ask them like, hey, I want to transfer this money to the next person, then they need to sign off on it. And if, if then they refuse, then you can just send your off-chain transaction that you already have in your hands. You can send that to the Bitcoin blockchain. So the security really could go up to 100%. But the downside of that is then, then if even one of the Federation members disappears, everybody's forced on-chain. So then this is also a type of solution that at the end of the day benefits from, from something like watchtowers. So I have the money, uh, I you know, have this particular uh, control of the state chain, I transfer it to someone else, but I still have that off-chain transaction that is my you know, bailout transaction, but it's mm-hmm. no longer valid because somebody else has a more recent one. In order for, right. for that person who has the more recent one to stop me from stealing the money, they have to actually be aware of what's going on in the network and be able to broadcast their updated version of the transaction um, yes, if I right. were to maliciously broadcast my older and out-of-date version. Yeah, you have to actively monitor the blockchain. Right. So, so it's, I mean, again, like we're, we're talking about this in the context of scaling solutions. It sounds like this really is like a component of a larger scaling solution and something that, so do you see something like this being built into uh, Lightning? Do you see this as like an addition to that or an additional layer? Or are you seeing right. this kind of as a standalone thing that has good synergies with Lightning um, and some other technologies, but isn't necessarily connected to them in any sort of fundamental way? Well, I think it reaches its top usefulness if it kind of gets combined with Lightning, but it's a very separate thing. And that's kind of the nice thing about it. On the side of whoever runs the state chain, whoever this federation is, they don't have to know anything about whether you're opening a Lightning channel, whether you're doing some kind of advanced smart contract that's enforced by the Bitcoin blockchain. Like none of that needs to be known by them or, or managed by them. So the Lightning part of it is really kind of like, it's, it's literally a completely separate layer, uh, very similar to how, you know, Bitcoin and the Lightning Network works today. And, you know, I would argue that even the Lightning Network itself, you know, is not even specific to Bitcoin. Any blockchain that has some kind of multi-sig plus some hash time lock kind of construction can, can kind of operate on the Lightning Network. And, you know, so it's, it's kind of similar here where it can function separately, but it will make a lot of sense for users to kind of use it uh, simultaneously. Today's show was brought to you in part by eToro. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with low spreads, no commission, and no hidden fees. eToro has spent more than 10 years making sophisticated trading features simple to use on any device with their intuitive app. If you're not ready to trade yet, practice building your portfolio with the eToro virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with the 12 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. So why not check it out? Create your account today at etoro.ltbshow.com. That's etoro.ltbshow.com. So, Ruben, uh, this is a really interesting idea. Kind of, where are you with it right now? I, you first presented this, I guess, about a year ago. Um, and so, you know, I'd love to kind of hear the journey with this and how it's been received throughout the community. It seems like it's been pretty positively received from what I've been able to tell, but I'm kind of curious for what you're thinking. Yeah. So I would say uh, when I, I first uh, presented it at Scaling Bitcoin in Tokyo, so that was about a year ago now. 
And I would say at the time, it kind of flew under the radar, I think, because people didn't really know who I was. So nobody was really kind of fully paying attention to it. I feel like, you know, a couple months went by and then I got another opportunity to kind of talk about it. I ended up attending the core dev meetings in Tokyo and then after that in Amsterdam uh, about, what was it, like five months ago uh, this year. And I talked about it again there. And then I got the opportunity pretty randomly, actually, to talk about it again at uh, Breaking Bitcoin because one of the speakers couldn't make it. And last minute they, they asked at the core dev meeting, they were asking if there was, if there was anyone who wanted to present about something. So I ended up presenting there. And oh, yeah, I mean, also, I, I wrote a Medium article that kind of explained it in more layman terms. I think from there on, like people started to kind of notice like, hey, this is something interesting. And then some of the devs, you know, it's kind of hard to get their attention, right? Because everybody's so busy and everybody's working on cool stuff. So you, you kind of, you know, you yeah. kind of have to get the ball rolling, so to speak. And that kind of ended up happening. And then Adam Beck, he mentioned it a couple of times and he thought it was cool. And then, you know, everybody kind of finally started to pay attention <laughs> at it. And it was like, oh, hey, this is actually kind of a cool thing. That's kind of how it took off from that moment on. I, I think now it's on people's radar and people are talking about it. So we, we didn't really get too much into your background. I'd like to understand that because this is a pretty technical proposal that you've put together. And it's a very clever yeah. <laughs> idea that puts together a couple of things that people have been talking about in the space for a long time. Ruben, what I know about you is that, you know, you started one of the early Bitcoin meetup groups in South Korea. Um, yeah. You do a podcast, you know, kind of tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to here. Yeah, sure. So I started off just diving into the rabbit hole, like everybody else with Bitcoin, where, you know, the first time I heard about it, I was like, ah, you know, this is like PayPal or something. What's the point? And then finally it clicked, right? It was like, wow, okay, this is actually, you know, decentralized. Nobody can touch it. It's its own thing that, that just runs itself. And that fascinated me deeply. I started a meetup because there was kind of, there was no meetup here in Korea at the time. This was like February, 2014. Started talking to other people and I just kind of naturally took on the role of helping other people understand the tech and kind of how it works because I just kind of realized if you see all these blockchains that are out there, right? There's, there's, uh, there's so many of them right now. People, if you just go by, by, by faith and you, you don't really understand the technology, then I think it's very hard to understand what's valuable about it and, and why all these on paper, great sounding altcoins are all nonsense. It really requires kind of a deep understanding. And it took me a lot of time and effort because especially at the time, there was not a lot of information, articles, documentation available, but I just found it fascinating enough to kind of spend a lot of time on it. And then I figured, well, you know, I can teach this to others. So over time, the Bitcoin meetup here in Seoul became more and more technical to the point where, you know, we have these monthly meetups that are kind of open to the public and where any, anybody is welcome and it's kind of, you know, beginner friendly. But then we have these weekly meetups where, we basically end up kind of diving into the tech. And as I was doing that, I just learned more and more about it to the point where I kind of became able to contribute back and I started posting on the mailing list, just kind of how it rolled. I guess I'm kind of naturally curious and eager to learn about things that I think are cool. Mm -hmm. And 
it, it just went a lot harder than, than I was even expecting. So did you did yeah. you have a background in uh, in this sort of software development? Or I mean, like this, no. it seems like a very specific. Yeah, oh, that's so that's, super, that's very interesting. So it really was just kind of through osmosis and kind of constant exposure to the ideas that you were able to kind of connect the dots here to, to see that these yeah. things could be interesting together. Specifically, like if if I were to uh, you know, describe like kind of how stations came to be, it, it really is kind of a culmination of all these other cool technologies that I I've been studying from you know side chains by uh, you know Adam Beck, Greg Maxwell, and, and a bunch of others. There's L2 in there, right? This Christian Decker and mm -hmm. Laulu and and Rusty Russell. Schnorr signatures is as heavily used, but you know Peter Wool has been working on that. And then there's adapter signatures by Andrew Pulstra. You know, all that stuff kind of like put together, you know, that is kind of essential what state chains is. So it really is, um, I would say, you know, that's maybe like my strength also. Something I, I only kind of recently figured out, but I do programming, but I'm not like a programmer. I'm not the type of guy who would actually end up uh, like developing this. But, you know, I talked to Adam back. He basically said something along the lines like, yeah, you're, you're a little bit like me. Like, you're kind of like a protocol developer who kind of thinks about all these high-level things and puts them together in, in novel and interesting ways. That's, I'd say, how it ended up. I would like to just clarify that at the moment, there's no prototype implementation or code base that someone could play with here, or is there any plan to develop something like yeah. that? So one of the current issues, so to speak, of uh, like state chains require a few things, right? They require snore signatures and they require at the very least uh, a SIGASH no input, which is kind of what L2 is based on. We still need two softworks before this can even be viably implemented. So as of today, even if you want it, unless you kind of create it like a custom version of Bitcoin Core or maybe Elements has sufficient support for these opcodes and the SIGASH no inputs, but without that, you can't even build a prototype right now. So it's kind of limited in terms of us needing a couple of softworks first before this can even be implemented. So Ruben, can you tell us what you envision this technology being used for? And once it's more fully fleshed out, did you have a specific use case in mind when you were thinking about this idea? Or are you just sort of like excited about more general possibilities, like paint a picture for us. Sure. I think the most important part of it is really that it is a kind of another way of doing sidechains, but with less trust required. And there are two aspects of this. You know, one I've kind of hit on, which is the added security. But the other aspect of it is that actually, the interesting thing is that on the state chain, kind of on the server side of the federation, they can actually do this entirely through blind signatures. And because it's this two of two multisig where the second key, while theoretically, you know, the Federation could obtain it if they really try it really hard, the, the fact that they don't have it makes it actually very interesting from a legal perspective. You can imagine that a government entity comes to whoever is running this Federation and says like, hey, confiscate these coins. So the first thing is, which coins? The state chain literally doesn't know which coins they control because it's all blind signatures. Okay, maybe the government comes in and says, like, here, look, you actually control these coins. Maybe you didn't know it, but you have them. Now confiscate them. Well, if they want to confiscate them, they need this second key. And if they had been playing by the rules and they hadn't actually actively tried to obtain this key, then literally they cannot even confiscate this money. 
And what that means is that whoever has that money, at most what they can do is refuse to sign. If they refuse to sign, then whoever had the money can just withdraw on-chain because they have this, this off-chain L2 transaction that they can just send to the Bitcoin blockchain, and they're fine. I think that's very interesting. If we're envisioning a future where people are running these sidechains and these state chains, then there might be a time when there is going to be significant government oversight and, and pressure. And this is the kind of thing where it really blurs the line between you know, what money really is. All the Federation is doing is blindly signing messages. And they don't know if the messages are money. They don't know if the messages are, are anything. I think that distinction or that kind of blurring the line of, of what it is to transfer money, I think that can kind of be a powerful tool to get this up and running and not get a lot of government pressure on your back because you can actually make the argument that you're not controlling any money, at least not knowingly. So Ruben, once we kind of look beyond Bitcoin, are there implications for this technology to other technologies? It seems like kind of lightning and all these higher layer things, you know, they're really not attached to the underlying blockchain. Where do you see this technology going kind of at the end of the day? It's hard to say exactly where it's going, but at the very least, I imagine that we're going to get to a point where the Bitcoin blockchain is going to be more and more expensive to use. Like it's currently only supporting maybe 10 transactions per second. There's just going to be more and more demand for that. And the Lightning Network can help to some degree, but I don't think it's going to alleviate the problem entirely. And in fact, we don't even want it to alleviate the problem entirely because there still needs to be like a sufficient amount of on-chain fees. So this is kind of yet another in-between step where if you have somebody who wants to pay for coffee or, or, or something along those lines, you don't really need a censorship-resistance blockchain for that. And so I think in those cases, something like a sidechain makes sense. But then maybe you feel like the sidechain is not secure enough and not anonymous enough or not, you know, it is still relatively vulnerable to being shut down if, if governments really want. So then maybe you would prefer a state chain, despite the, also the kind of downsides of, of having to manage these UTXOs. There are lots of different perspectives on crypto and lots of different uh, ways that people are thinking about sort of different problems. What do you think is, for you, one of the most underappreciated or most misunderstood problems or trends that you see in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency broadly? And like, what are you thinking about for the next year besides this? Very generally, I feel like people are very price focused and people are very adoption focused. And I think that's also maybe a price pumping mechanism. I feel that's the wrong focus. I think adoption is important too, but it's kind of inevitable. And I think the, the focus really should be on A, the technology and B, helping people understand how it really works. And we need people that really value decentralization and understand it because at the end of the day, Every time you upgrade Bitcoin Core or whatever software you want to run, you're making a consensus decision on what you want the blockchain to be. And if you do that without really knowing what the decision is that you're making, I think that kind of undermines the, the decentralization of the system because the whole point is that the users are in control, but you can't be in control if you don't understand it, right? You can't make a decision if you're, if you're not informed. I guess that's underappreciated, I would say, or under-highlighted, and it gets drowned out by all the voices that it just, you know, it's tempting. Everybody wants to make a buck seeing the price go up, and I get that, but 
that's not how we're going to, you know, get the thing that is valuable, right, to continue to work. Well, anyone who's interested in reading up more on my Twitter account, I have a pinned tweet with a bunch of links to all the state chains related content that I put out, like a Medium post, all of those things at Samson Rubin. So maybe people can check that out if they're interested in learning more about state chains. Absolutely. And we'll include those in the show notes as well for this episode. Ruben, thank you very much for your time. If you'd like to hear more of uh, Ruben, you can check out his podcast at unhashedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. A big thanks to our sponsors over at edge.app, brave.com, and etoro.com. Today's episode featured Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, Ruben Somson, and Adam B. Levine. This episode also featured content from Invest 2019 with Nolan and Eric Weinstein. This episode was edited by Jonas and Adam, with music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email adam at ltbshow.com. And of course, to never miss an episode, head over to ltbshow.com and subscribe for free. We'll see you next time.